Hi, I'm Keith Lemke. Welcome to Afghanistan Simplified. Today is the first of, I hope, uh, about 40 to 50 episodes. I'm going to try to keep these episodes down to about 15 to 20 minutes so I don't bore you to tears. So <clears throat> I've been in Afghanistan, like I said, for 14 years. <clears throat> and what I've noticed when I go back to the States and I talk to people, is very few people know what's going on. It's pretty much fallen to page 50 on any newspaper. It's hardly even mentioned in the news anymore. In fact, other than the peace process that goes on in Doha, I don't think anybody even hears about Afghanistan. And what's amazing is, going on right now is the United States with the Taliban, with the uh, Afghan government, with Russia and Iran and Pakistan and Turkmenistan, everybody's involved trying to come up with a peace plan. And so you would think that the United States and the people of the United States would be somewhat interested in what's going on because what happens from this peace, these peace talks and this peace plan is going to be really what dictates the U.S. policy and what Biden's administration does. And it's a big decision. I mean, we could stay here for another 40 years or we could leave by May 1st. And both are on the table. So I would think that the American people would be interested in this. And as a taxpayer, I'm interested, but also there's a moral and ethical issue involved with all this as well. And that issue really extends to where are we going with our public policy or in our foreign policy relative to other cultures and other places in the world. So, but when I've been back in the States, I've asked people what I found is they really don't know what's going on and they're not really being told the whole story. And it's, it may be by accident, it may be intentional, I'm not sure. But what I do know is, is that in my mind, there are three reasons why they don't, are not being told the whole story. <clears throat> and it's not that the whole story isn't there, but you have to do a lot of research and a lot of reading and you really have to focus yourself on finding finding all of the different documents that may lead you to a conclusion that makes sense. And so when when different reports are out and the average person uh, outside of Afghanistan sees it, they have absolutely no idea. Nothing really makes sense between what they're hearing and seeing. So what I want to do is present a series of podcasts that is truthful um, and it's a complete content so that it involves all the different dynamics of the culture, the politics, the history, the tribes, the Islam, everything mixed together. And when you do that, what happens is you can come up with a narrative that absolutely makes sense and actually that you can predict the future with. And like I say, I've been here for a long time. And what I have found is that I can predict the future to some extent pretty accurately. And so what I want to do is start telling you the story in a short, simple, concise way that makes sense to you and that you can understand and also that I'm not taking up your entire day. And so with that, let's talk a little bit why you're not given the whole story in one setting or why you don't feel like you have complete information. So today, the commander of, of Special Operations Command went on TV 
and he gave an interview and he essentially said that if the United States leaves Afghanistan after 20 years of building up its government and of building up its security forces, Afghanistan would collapse. Which is kind of interesting because two days ago, the Minister of Defense also came up online on the press and said that the Minister of Defense, the Minister of Interior, and the National Director of Security were prepared to essentially defend the government, whether the United States is here or not. So they, the question becomes, well, what, why are there two different stories? And why are they being told? And, and if everything's gone swell in uh, Afghanistan, like you read every day in the newspaper, you don't read about you know anybody getting defeated or you don't read anything really contrary other than a lot of corruption, then how would the special operations commander come online and say if the military left, the U.S. military left, Afghanistan would fall? It doesn't make sense. Well... There are three reasons for that. First of all, is the stakeholders of the war, the people fighting the war, the Minister of Defense in the Afghanistan, the Minister of Interior, and the National Director of Security, all Afghan entities, the United States military, the DOD, the, Sec the, the uh, Secretary of State of uh, the United States, and the Taliban, they're all using informational warfare. Information is a weapon. I remember as a cadet, I re, one of the lessons learned after Vietnam, and I went to West Point right after Vietnam, but the biggest lesson was that the military really never learned how to use the press and information as, as a weapon. And so they spent a lot of time between, say, 1978 until now, institutionalizing the processes and the units and the knowledge and the organizations to weaponize information. And so that's what they use. It is a part of our planning system as a military planner. I always plan information or information warfare as a weapon into a plan, just like I would plan the use of air bombs or um, the use of infantry or the use of ships or any other weapon, we would use information. <clears throat> And the the issue was is there's there's two types of information right for a weapon. One is to to help you win, and one type is to make sure you don't lose. And to help you win is that information that you you take you take information, whether they be facts, reports, made up stuff doesn't really matter. You shape it together in a narrative, and you amplify it out to every source you can get it out to. So that the enemy, the people who support your foe or your enemy, lose their will to fight, to fight and also lose their confidence. They lose a the confidence in both the people they're supporting and also in the more, maybe the moral, um, the moral platform that they think that they hold relative to the other side. And you make them doubt themselves, the capability and also the reasons that they're fighting. That's how you defeat their will. Now... That's how, that's what you do to, to help win. What you do to help keep from losing is you focus, you do the same thing, but on your own people. So what you do is you package information and narratives. When you change reports slightly, 
you shape the information, so you shape the perception that the person in the United States or in Europe or the people supporting our war, you shape their perception of what's going on. And you want them to think that you have the moral high ground, and you want them to think that you have obviously the advantage on the battlefield and that you had the political advantage and that you have the will of the people in the country to win so that they continue supporting you. The problem becomes is at some point you start believing your own shaped narratives. And after 20 years, I've seen that our institution actually believes a lot of the shaped narratives that we kind of made up back in 2001, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And now those have become institutionalized to the point where, I mean, you really can't tell the difference between the shaped narrative and the unshaped narrative. So that's one way. And, and the U.S. does it. Um, there are, you know, the U.S. and the the uh, minister or the uh, government of Afghanistan actually monopolize ninety nine percent of the technical press and, and internet and social media, so they can they can stop the Taliban from sending anything. They can change what the Taliban send out, and they can also uh, amplify above it. In other words, if the Taliban does something, they report something on Twitter. We can stop that message, and then what we can do right on top of that is throw out our message all over the place, right? And both the government and the U.S. do that a lot. Now, while the U.S. and, and the Afghan government own the primary press, the, the, the institutional press, you know, the, that would be the radio stations, the TV stations, and the internet, and access to the internet, the Taliban, on the other hand, really own the bazaars and mosques. They own the word of mouth. They do use Twitter, and they do use Facebook, and they use some of those, and they change addresses, and they change the um, their identities so that they're harder for us to track, and they get those out. And they do that, and they may be successful, but I think most of their success is really at the bazaar level and at mosques. So they're at the local level, and they're all over the country. And all you need is two or three guys in a certain area to go into a bazaar and say, hey, did you hear about? Hey, did you see? Hey, do you know about? And you go to the mosque, and in the middle of the mosque, you stand up and say, did you know? Did you see that? Did you, did you know that happened? Do you know they did this? <coughs> and what I have found is that the Taliban, since they are Afghans, they're out in the communities. Whereas the ANDSF, the security forces, and the um, certainly the U.S., we're not out in the communities anymore. We're we we're in fobs, right? And even the security forces, even the Afghan security forces, they don't go wandering around outside of their local neighborhoods that they feel safe in. And most of those, by the way, are in Kabul, a few little places in Mazar Sharif, a few places in Kandahar. In other words, there's some little neighborhoods in the urban areas where they're safe. Outside of those urban areas, those little areas in the urban areas, and in the rural areas, they're not safe, which tells you something in itself. So they don't get out to those places, but the Taliban do have people out there, and that's where they amplify it. Now, what that means is everybody outside of Afghanistan hears one thing, and everybody in Afghanistan hears multiple things, right? So they hear both views, while an American's only going to hear the... the the Department of Defenses or the 
Secretary of State's viewpoint or the or the Afghan government's viewpoint, somebody who's living out in the uh, a village is going to hear both viewpoints. And they will make up their mind of what they think that they've seen. In other words, experiences. After 20 years of war, and you know, at one time, we had over 300,000 contractors and military in Afghanistan, right? Between 2012 and 2015, we almost had 300,000 people here. And so we've, after 20 years, there's relatively no place in Afghanistan that has been untouched by warfare. And so the issue now becomes within Afghanistan is most everybody has actually seen something for themselves, either for or against the Taliban or for or against the government or for or against the U.S. or for or against NATO. They've seen they've been either the victim of the Taliban or the victim of the government or the victim of the U.S. And so they have pretty much have already kind of determined where they stand. And so all that happens now is, is that the information they hear either supports what they think and if it's contrary to what they think, they pretty much ignore it. And so that's what's kind of going on in Afghanistan now. And that's kind of important to understand because that's what's shaping the future. And that's what also gives the Taliban a lot of access uh, to, as far as the information campaign is, in order to, to sway opinion. But we don't see that. We can't see what they're doing because we're not there. We can see what the information in the in the uh, the internet, we can see some of that, but we don't get reflections for what the Taliban's effectiveness is. The other part of that is is that within Afghanistan, um, there are really two wars going on, and one is really an ethnic war, and the other is the government. That's a war of governance um, be between philosophy and how people want to be governed. And I will talk about both of those in more detail tomorrow. I'm not going to talk about those tonight. But today I'll talk. A I'll hit a little bit on the one about the government. You know, 99% of Afghans want to live under Islamic law. There's many polls that say it, and the fighting really suggests it. And all the indicators are there if you look at them. We like to kind of shape the narrative so it doesn't look that way. But we're not really fooling anybody except for ourselves and the 1% of the government that represents the progressive welfare state we want Afghanistan to eventually go to. And that small group of elites, they're the intelligentsia. I mean, these are people who have old money from the old monarch days. They went to Colombia or they went to school in the Europe. You know, they come back and they're educated. Their families are still in Europe or the United States, but they come back here because we invited them back. They have huge paychecks. They come back and, and they, they become part of the government. And as part of the government, they become ministers or they're generals or they're pretty high-level place or the advisors to the Ghani, the president. And these people are shaping the future. In their mind, they're pushing their Afghans, Af they're all the Afghan population into the future. And they're going to save the Afghans from this thing called tribalism and save it from Islam. You know, they're going to separate the people from those two hierarchies, right? And they're going to create this new progressive hierarchy in the form of a welfare state. And that's how they'll bring peace and prosperity to Afghanistan. And it sounds good pretty well. The problem is 99% of the people still want to be live under Sharia law. 
And that has some implications. I mean, the implications is very simply that the 0.01% of the population that the government represents, the progressives, who are have 99.9% access to the press, have 99.9% control of the press for the most part, they have control over social media, and they have control over the internet. And so that's all we see is those people, and that's all the that's all we hear is those people. We don't hear what's going on in the bazaars and the mosques and the calais and the in the in the communities outside of those small communities of elites. And they're really shaping the entire narrative for the West. But they're not being successful at shaping the entire narrative for all the people inside Afghanistan who've seen for themselves events, who've been either victims of one side or the other. Those people are making up their mind pretty much on them, their, their own self. There was one poll last year that said most people, 60% of the people, trust each other more than they do the press, which means they get their information from each other, word of mouth. Whereas 40%, you know, actually look at the media, which would be TV, with a little bit less influence. And then even 30% have access to the internet. Out of that 30%, only about 10% have 24-7 access to the internet. And so you don't see the messages being propagated technically throughout the population like you do in an industrial country where everybody lives on the internet and social media and watching news and everything else 24-7. Here you don't see that. And so the messaging, everybody is essentially at this point kind of telling the people who've already made up their mind what they want to hear. There's not a lot of shifting going on within the information war inside of Afghanistan. Well, so... That's one reason, um, is that the information warfare by the Taliban, the government, the U.S., we're trying to shape everybody's narrative. And as long as we're trying to do that, you're never going to hear the whole story. You're only going to hear what each of those three want to tell you. It's going to be whatever morally makes them look on the high ground and justifies what they're doing, morally makes the opposition look horrible and terrible, and whatever justifies what I want to do, you're going to hear about that. And whatever the other side does is going to be horrible, terrible, and unjustified. Right? And the government does it. The Afghan government does the same thing. In fact, they, they use their own press against us. They know the buttons to push with the West after 20 years to get what they want. Like, for instance, every time we get ready to pull out, you'll find huge increases in the number of ISIL and Al-Qaeda uh, people or or reports of Al Qaeda and ISIL also the numbers will expand by three or four times right before decisions are made whether the United States will leave or not. Well, it's it's just funny how that always happens. What happens because that in itself means that there's more terrorists here and we're going to stay here and fight the terrorists for them, while they fight the Taliban, and so it makes things look a lot worse than it is. And then every time we get ready to pull out, because we're like, man, you guys are corrupt and you, you're not making, you're not doing what you're supposed to, and, and you're not making any progress, or you're a waste of money. Then all of a sudden you get reports of how great everything is. And then as soon as we get ready to pull out, because, well, you're all great now, you're good to go, you're independent, you can do it by yourself. Then we're going to get all these reports, they're about ready to collapse, and ISIL and Al-Qaeda are back in. They know how to press the buttons with the press, and they shape their narratives to fool us. And it works. And then, of course, the Taliban 
the Taliban are in the bazaars and mosques and everything we do is going to be bad. The government is going to be, in their mind, is going to be unjust because it's not a Sharia law. And to some extent, I'll explain in another one of these um, podcasts why they're probably right. And they'll they'll explain why they, the, the, the Constitution is not Sharia law. And in fact, they are right. And I can explain that later, too. So everybody has their own point of view. And the purpose of this podcast for you is this series that's coming up is going to be to to try to put the complexity of this culture with the Islam, the tribalism, the patronage, the history, the economics, to put that all together in stories, in a story fashion, to make sense of it for you so that you can sit back and go, ah, oh, I understand what's happening now. I understand what the problem is. And then you can make your mind whether you want to support staying in Afghanistan or not in the future yourself without some expert coming up and saying, you need to stay in, stay in Afghanistan. And the experts you're going to find really don't even understand the complexity of it either. They're always going to talk from one perspective or another. The biggest one is social justice, women's rights, right? Women's rights. Well, I got bad news for them. The, the 50% of the country who's fighting from the northern tribes that we are allied with, that we built into the army and the security forces for the most part, those guys are Muslims. They don't. Their belief in women's rights is uh, hardly any different than what the Taliban's is. It's a little bit different, but not much. It's the execution of the law, of the Islamic law, that differs between the two. And the northern tribes don't want to execute the law like the Taliban do, which is the Pashtun Deoband in the south, who support the Taliban. But they want Islamic law. Well, it's only the 0.02 percenters in, in, in Kabul who don't want Islamic law. right? They're the ones who want a progressive liberal law. But they only represent 0.02% of the population, which is a problem when you're trying to put a country together. But they have, like I say, 99.9% .9 of the media, so they're the only message we hear. Well, the complexity of it, and then you'll have other people, ex experts, who approach it from the Islamic side, from the religious side, and they're only going to tell you about their particular jurisprudence that they like, you know. Those guys stole the religion. Well, no, they didn't. They just they just execute Islamic law differently. So it's not stealing. It's just looking at it differently. So that's always perverted. Then there's tribal perspectives. You know, you have one group that says, we don't have tribal problems because they know that Americans don't like ethnic competition. But everybody knows that there is, right? And then, of course, you have the war stories. Well, the war stories are nice to listen to and they're fun, but they don't really explain what's going on. So those are normally the perspectives you get from the experts. And you really have to put all that together to come up with a, an idea, a good vision of what's really happening. So that's another thing I'll try to do throughout this process. And finally, the press. The press has done a horrible job in Afghanistan. And, and the reason is they don't, they don't, repre they don't represent the Afghan farmer. 75 to 80% of the Afghan population are rural ethical values, right? So 70% actually live in the rural areas, 70 to 75%, and they're farmers. Or they, they're, they, they're in a business that supports agriculture, and that's what they do. 
There's another 10 to 15% that have been pushed out of their farms in the last 20 years, and they've gone to the city. They're, they're in the urban areas, but they're, they're on the outskirts of the main cities. And these people still have urban values. They, they haven't, or not urban values, I'm sorry, but rural values. They haven't urbanized. They're rural values living next to an urban area. And the problem is the values of the elites inside the city don't represent that population. So in reality, between 90 and 95% of the population of Afghanistan are rural. They have rural values, of which of, of those 90%, about 80% actually live in rural areas. Well, no one speaks for them. The press isn't speaking for them. You don't see anybody from CNN speaking for them. You don't see anybody from ABC, NBC, MSNBC, CBS talking for them. You don't see anybody on social media. Most of those people don't even have access to social media except for maybe one or two hours a day. And they're not going to waste minutes on a time card, and a, on a phone card, to talk on Facebook or to talk on on uh, Twitter. So we don't hear from those people. And that's that's like 85% of the population. So, and that's where the press has failed. No one's out talking to them, and they're not even representing the peace process, which is why the peace process in my my mind is going to fail anyhow, because the three parties to it, the U.S., the Taliban, and the government, each have their own agendas each have their own perspectives and none of them not one of the three represent the average farmer out in in the countryside of afghanistan and those are the people who need peace the most by the way they're also the people who support the fighters to the army of the government and to the taliban so you know if you're a young man or woman in afghanistan and it doesn't matter where you are, traditionally, before you join one side or the other, you got to get permission from your parents, your father first, and your mother. Both. you got to get permission from both. If your father's dead, your mother becomes the elder of the family. you got to get her permission. If both your father and mother are dead, you're going to go to your uncle. If he's dead, you're going to go to your older brother. But there's an elder of every family, and that is the person who has to give every man or woman permission to fight for the army or to join the army to fight for the Taliban or join the, the Taliban or to do anything and that's a tradition it's a law it's almost it's inbred into these people so much and it's such a duty and obligation that everybody does it well that means every Taliban fighter has been given permission by his family and every fighter in the army has been given permission by his family so those farmers out there are the ones that are given permission, but no one is speaking for them in the peace process. And by the way, they're the ones that want peace the most. And the press hasn't done it. The Afghan press doesn't do it. Nobody speaks for them. The U.S. doesn't speak for them. We speak for the 1% of the elites in the government and for the elites in the army that we help create. That's who we speak for. The government doesn't speak for them. They want this progressive welfare state to be transpired, and they're going to slowly push it through, and they're kind of sneaky about it, which really is what's going to make everybody mad in the long run. And then the Taliban, they don't speak for the others. They speak for uh, the ulama, the, the learned class of Islamic scholars who want to, you know, they want to govern the country under a fiqh of Islam, but they don't speak for the average farmer. So... And that's the problem. 
And if someone spoke for the average farmer, I think what you would find is this. And here's the final thing for today. The average Afghan wants to live under Islamic law. 50% of those people don't want to live under the jurisprudence that the Taliban were executing when they were in power. They don't want to live under the Taliban jurisprudence called a fiqh, right? And it's the deal bond jurisprudence, Hanafi deal bond jurisprudence. But they want to live under the Sharia law that they had become accustomed to in their tribes and in their locations where those tribes have been. So 99% of Afghans want Sharia law. They don't want a liberal progressive law or a liberal progressive government. Also, 99% of Afghans want to live in a republic. A republic being where at the provincial and district level, they have the right to pick their district governors, their provincial governors. They have a right to, to be on the shores and the boards that select the appropriations of money. They want representation at that level. They don't have it right now. Right now, the president, 96% of the money is donor money. That's the GDP. It comes through the central government, which is the, pre which is the president. The president allocates the money theoretically under the guidance of the jirga, which is the legislative body, and it has an upper and lower house. The upper house, house is selected by the president and votes. The lower house is selected by the upper house, the president, and one-third are elected by the population. So, in reality, the people only really, the, the average person only really elects one-third of the, the legislative body that's run in Afghanistan. The rest are appointed by the president or are appointed by the upper house itself. I mean, so a third of the third of the representatives aren't even elected, or two thirds aren't even elected. Only one third is. The president Ashraf Ghani was elected by less than one million of thirty-five million people this last time, so he doesn't really represent the majority. So the government really doesn't represent the majority of the people at all, and that is a problem. And so, but they want a republic. And oh, by the way, the Constitution is what gives the president all that power. So the the Constitution needs to be changed. They want a republic and they want Islamic Sharia law. And if we'd give them that to them, you'd see peace and you would see a lot of changes in the Afghanistan that I think would make things easier for the tribes to get along and also for the different Islamic communities to get along. Okay. So that'll be the end today. We're already at 30 minutes, so I'm going to quit it. Thank you for joining me. Please, if you enjoyed it, toggle the little button on the bottom that says you enjoyed it and approve it. If you have any recommendations or comments, add those. And please, please join me again for the next round, for the second edition of my podcast of Afghanistan Simplified. And on that one, we'll take you start working through the history and adding in and filling in the gaps of everything I left out today. Thank you very much, and have a good day. Uh -huh.